Luke 1, 28-35 presents some of the most wonderful words of assurance and divine certainty in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ from his conception as birth of the King of the Jews to his ultimate triumph as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Luke 1, 28-35 And coming in, Gabriel said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Specifically, in verses 31 to 33, Luke presents seven wills in the Christmas narrative. Contextually, each of the verbs translated as will is in the future tense. Will conceive, will name, will be great, will be called, will give, will reign, will have no end. The use of the future tense here is known as a predictive future. That is, the tense indicates the expectation that something will take place. These wills speak of Christ's advent, his first and second. And from our perspective, four of these wills are past, occurring at Christ's first advent. The last three wills are future and will be fulfilled at Christ's second advent. So let's begin with verse 31. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. The first will of Christmas is that Mary will conceive a son. This angelic announcement follows the Old Testament structure for divine birth announcements. The first announcement was made to Hagar in Genesis 16.11. Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. The second woman to receive a divine announcement of a child was the wife of Manoah in Judges 13.5. Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. That son was Samson. Now it's worth noting that both announcements were made by none other than the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, or the messenger of Yahweh, is a theophany or pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the word of God. A third divine announcement in the Old Testament is found in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy is of utmost importance because its fulfillment begins here in Luke 31. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now Mary questioned the practicality of that statement because she was still a virgin. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now the lack of, of a male progenitor in the conception of the Holy Child is underscored by the genealogies of Christ in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. 
Throughout the Matthew record, the phrase, was the father of, is the active form of the verb ganao. The active voice of ganao means to be the male agent responsible for the conception of a child. Therefore, according to Matthew, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and so forth. However, in Matthew 1.16, ganao is changed to the passive voice. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The passive voice of ganao translates there as was born. This passive voice indicates that Joseph did not sire Jesus. As well, verse 16 states that Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom, ekhas, Jesus was born. The phrase, by whom, is a feminine pronoun. It points back to Mary, not Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary, but it was solely Mary who was involved in Jesus' birth. While Joseph was not the progenitor of Jesus, Jesus was considered his legal heir. By attaching Joseph's lineage to Jesus, it indicates that Joseph had adopted Jesus as his legal heir. And as the legal heir of Jesus, Jesus had the right to the Davidic throne. Now, if there's any question regarding Joseph's role in Mary's conception of Jesus, the text records Joseph's reaction to the news of her pregnancy. Matthew 1, 18-19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Mary became pregnant while betrothed to Joseph. And yet the text states before they came together, before they had a physical union. The term betrothed indicates that Mary and Joseph were married, but had not yet consummated their marriage. The term there identifies the first stage of marriage in Jewish culture, usually lasting for a year before the wedding night, more legal than an engagement. And upon learning of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph, knowing that he had not had sexual relations with Mary, chose to privately divorce her according to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she has, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house. The fact that she was pregnant with a child that was not his was grounds of indecency, and therefore grounds for divorce. Joseph chose to divorce Mary privately because she could have been stoned for being pregnant by another man. Deuteronomy 22, 20-24. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. You shall purge the evil from among you. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and shall stone them to death, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. 
Now, according to the Lucan genealogy, Jesus was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Luke 3.23. Note the phrase there, as was supposed. It implies that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. But after almost 30 years, he was accepted to be Jesus' father. Also note that Joseph is listed as the son of Eli. Matthew records Joseph's father is Jacob. Because Hebrew genealogies record the paternal line or the line of the father, even though Eli is Mary's father, her husband Joseph is listed as Eli's son. Now while the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are independent accounts of Jesus' birth, both confirm the fact that Mary was a virgin when she conceived and remained a virgin until after she birthed Jesus. Matthew 1.25, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Luke 1, 27 and 34, Gabriel was sent to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? Luke 2, 5 and 7, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, if Jesus' father was Joseph or another man, then the scriptures lied about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within Mary's womb. Furthermore, if Jesus had a human father, then Jesus inherited a sin nature. The sin nature is passed seminally through the male to his progeny, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. If Jesus had a sin nature then he could not have been the spotless sacrifice required to appease God's wrath against sin. Thus, it is necessary for Christ to be born of a virgin. While a woman has a sin nature, she does not pass it down to the next generation. Thus, the second person of the Godhead took on human flesh, free from sin, to deal with human sin. As well, the divine birth announcement fulfills the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Following the disaster of the fall, God cursed the serpent, the earth, and humanity. In the midst of spelling out the curses upon the woman, God revealed that from the woman a descendant would come who would destroy the devil. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, the first messianic prophecy of Scripture. This Savior would be from the seed of the woman, i.e. her seed. The term seed here is a singular masculine noun meaning offspring. Now biologically, seed always traces through the male lineage. Hence, why the genealogies of Scripture trace the male lineage. That the seed is associated with the woman, her seed, indicates something unusual happened in the conception process. A woman conceiving a child without copulating with a male partner is miraculous. And the seed of the woman denotes one son who would bruise the serpent on the head. The bruising of Jesus' heel refers to Satan's seeming victory at Jesus' death. And the bruising of Satan's head refers to his ultimate defeat by Jesus. Ironically, Satan's seeming victory at the cross was the means of Jesus' complete and permanent victory over Satan. Regarding the vitality of the virgin birth, MacArthur says this, The virgin birth is an underlying assumption of everything the Bible says about Jesus. 
To throw out the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity, the accuracy and authority of Scripture, and a host of other related doctrines that are at the heart of the Christian faith. No issue is more important than the virgin birth to our understanding of who Jesus is. If we deny Jesus is God, we have denied the very essence of Christianity. As well, Millard Erickson states, quote, If we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible, and there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. So the first will of Christmas was that Mary would conceive a child. The second will of Christmas is that Joseph and Mary will name the child Jesus. Verse 31 of Luke 1. And you shall name him Jesus. When Gabriel appeared to Mary, he instructed her that the child would be named Jesus. Later in Matthew 1.18, Gabriel appeared to Joseph and said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, interestingly, the name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Yeshua, or Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. In the Old Testament, two individuals bore the name Yeshua, or Joshua. Joshua, the successor of Moses, and Joshua, the high priest. Both of these men are types of Christ and were temporal saviors. Joshua, the successor of Moses, delivered the people out of their wilderness and brought them into the promised land. Joshua, the high priest, delivered the people from Babylonian exile and returned them to the promised land. Now notice back in Matthew 1.18 the term for. For he will save his people from their sins. That indicates that the child is to be called Jesus because of what he will do. What will this child do? He will deliver people from their sins. Indeed, as Acts 4.12 states, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Furthermore, the verb shall or will here, kaleo, means to assign a proper name to an individual. Now, the angel merely provided the name to Mary and Joseph, but it was God who appointed the name, Philippians 2.9. For this very reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And it is that name of Jesus that every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. Now, that Joseph applied the name to the child, identifies that he legally adopted Mary's firstborn child as his own firstborn child. That Jesus was adopted as Joseph's firstborn son makes him the legal heir of Joseph. And remember, Joseph was a direct descendant of King David. Matthew 1.20 Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Luke 1.27 A virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Luke 2.4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. As such, Jesus is the son or descendant of King David and inherits the rights to sit on the throne as king of the Jews. So the second will of Christmas is that Jesus, or is that Joseph rather, will name the child Jesus. The third will of Christmas is in verse 32. 
He will be great. The third will of Christmas is that Jesus will be great. The term great here indicates one who is important or out of the ordinary. In Luke 1.15, the angel said to Elizabeth that her son would be great in the sight of the Lord. The term great in that context refers to the importance of John's ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah. But in the context of Luke 1.32, the angel used the term great as a title in similar fashion to Alexander the Great. Hence, the child will be known as Jesus the Great. In the Old Testament, the title great is used only for God. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Prophetically, Micah foretold that the Messiah would be great. Micah 5.4 He will arise and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Therefore, by applying the term great to the child, the angel was indicating that Jesus was the promised Messiah and divine. Paul confirmed this truth in Titus 2.13 when he referred to Christ as the great God and Savior, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of greatness, Jesus is greater than Abraham. John 8, 53. The Pharisees said, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Of course, Christ's response was that I am. John 4, 12. He's greater than Jacob. The Samaritan woman said, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. He's greater than Solomon. Matthew twelve forty two. Christ answered, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And in Luke 11.32, he's greater than Jonah. Christ answered, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, in Luke 7.16, after seeing Jesus perform miracles that only God could accomplish, the people declared that he was the great prophet of fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. In Luke 7, 16, the people said, Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And concerning believers, Jesus is our great high priest and great shepherd. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And Luke provides six great truths here about Jesus' greatness. One, his greatness is personal. He will. Two, his greatness is perceivable. He will be called. Three, his greatness is peculiar. He'll be called the son of the highest. Four, his greatness is practical. He'll sit on the throne. Fifth, his greatness is powerful. His reign. And sixth, his greatness is perpetual. His reign has no end. Jesus will be great. The fourth will of Christmas is that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 32, he will be called the Son of the Most High. The demon in Mark 5, 7 called Jesus the Son of the Most High. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. That a demon 
referred to Jesus as the Son of the Most High indicates that this title belonged to the second person of the Godhead throughout eternity. Now the verb here, will be called, means to give a name to someone which reflects a designation or quality. As well, in the Semitic culture, divinely given names have etymological significance. The title Most High translates the Greek term hupistos. In the Septuagint, the term hupistos translates the Hebrew title El Yalyan, or Most High God. Genesis 14, 18-20, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God, Most High, El Elyon. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God, Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Psalm seven seventeen. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord, Most High. The term Elyon comes from the term Allah, meaning to be exalted. Hence, God is the exalted one, or the one that is above all others. That Jesus is the Son of the Most High designates Him as the exalted one, or the one above all others. Also consider that in Semitic culture, the term Son refers to one who is the carbon copy of another person. As such, the phrase son of indicates that a son possesses certain qualities of his father. For example, in Psalm 89.22, the phrase son of wickedness implies that an individual possesses wickedness as a quality. That Jesus is the son of El Elyon implies that he is a carbon copy of his father, the exalted one, and possesses the same qualities as his father. Paul states in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is, quote, the exact representation of his nature. The phrase exact representation, occurring only in Hebrews 1.3, translates the Greek term character. It denotes something that is an exact copy or exact likeness. It originates from the engraving die used in making coins. The die would be pressed against the metal and when removed would leave behind an exact copy of the image. He's the exact copy of God's nature. Nature, hypostasis, refers to the substance or essence of someone or something. According to Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the exact copy of God's nature or essence. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Therefore, whatever God the Father is, the Son is the exact copy of Him. If the Father is holy, the Son is holy. If the Father is righteous, ergo the Son is righteous. Everything true of the Father is then true of the Son. See, as the Son of Mary, Jesus was fully human. But as the Son of the Highest, Jesus was fully God. Then the Son of Mary and Son of the Highest fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9-6. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. The joining together of these two natures, human and divine, is known as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the means by which Christ maintained his divine nature while taking on a human nature. The addition of a human nature did not cause a loss or diminishing of his divine nature. John Walvoord states this, the two natures are united without loss of any essential attributes and that the two natures maintain their separate identity. Infinity cannot be transferred to finity. Mind cannot be transferred to matter. God cannot be transferred to man or vice versa. To rob the divine nature of God of a single attribute would destroy his deity. 
and to rob man of a single human attribute would result in destruction of true humanity. It is for this reason that the two natures of Christ cannot lose or transfer a single attribute. Now, it's essential to underscore that Christ was not merely indwelling a human being. He was 100% God while being 100% man. Both of these natures were necessary for Christ to accomplish humanity's redemption. As God, Christ's death had infinite value to cover the sins of all humanity. And as man, Christ represented fallen humanity as its sacrifice for sin. If he was not fully human, then his death on the cross for sin was an illusion. Though fully human, let us note that Christ did not possess a sinful fallen nature. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, the fifth will of Christmas is that the Lord God will give Jesus the throne of David. Beginning with this will statement, the angel's prophetic word focuses upon the second advent of Christ. The second advent or second coming of Christ will occur at the end of the tribulation period. At that time, Christ will return, not as the humble servant, but as the conquering king. His return will bring fulfillment to the Davidic covenant. See, when Yahweh made his covenant with David, he guaranteed that David's house and kingdom would endure forever, and one of his descendants would sit upon the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 and 16. When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Jeremiah provides further clarification to the promised descendant of the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah 33, 14-16 In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The phrase, in those days, in Jeremiah 33, refers to a future period when Israel will be, be restored. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. The cause of this restoration, when, as Jeremiah states in 33, chapter 33, the righteous branch of David that will spring forth from David's line will reign as king. When the promised heir sits upon the throne of David, he will accomplish four things. First, the king will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Second, he will regather Israel and all Judah will be saved. Third, the king will cause Jerusalem to dwell in safety. And fourth, he will reinstate the priesthood so that the Levitical priest shall never lack a man to offer offerings and prepare sacrifices. Jeremiah further explains that this branch is the promised descendant of the Davidic covenant. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
Now, some claim this promise is unattainable because the Davidic throne ceased in 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem. However, this is a misinterpretation of the text. The promise does not claim that the monarch would be unbroken, but that there would be an unbroken line of descendants. And as established by the biblical genealogies, Joseph is of the house of David. By adopting Jesus, Joseph made him the rightful heir to the throne of David. Furthermore, Jesus is God in the flesh, thus he is eternal. And being both God and man, Jesus can fulfill the Davidic covenant and sit on the throne of his father David forever. Now the sixth will of Christmas is that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob, verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Whereas the previous will focused on Christ as king, this will focuses on Christ's kingdom. The phrase house of Jacob is a traditional Old Testament title for Israel. Exodus 19.3 Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Isaiah 2, 5-6, Come thou house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. Isaiah eight seventeen, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Isaiah 48, 1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah. Thus the kingdom over which Christ will reign is the kingdom of Israel. That is, Christ will reign over a regathered and redeemed national Israel. Romans eleven twenty five to 27 For I did not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. During his first advent, Christ offered to establish the kingdom, and it was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Accordingly, Christ did not wear a kingly crown, but a crown of thorns during his first advent. In turn, Christ promised to establish his kingdom with a future redeemed Israel. Matthew twenty-one forty-three. I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. Now many want to spiritualize all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the king and the kingdom and make them apply to the church and Christianity in general. But to spiritualize these promises is to steal specific promises made to Israel by God. However, as sure as God himself said it, Christ will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel, forever. And finally, the seventh will of Christmas is that Jesus' kingdom will have no end. Verse 33, his kingdom will have no end. A never-ending kingdom is an allusion to Isaiah 9-7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The phrase no end means there will be no boundary in terms of sphere or extent. The sphere of his kingdom is the whole world. Zechariah 14, 9 and 16. And the Lord will be the king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And the extent of Christ's kingdom is for all eternity. Daniel 7.14 To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Revelation 11.5 The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the eternality of Christ's reign supports the saints' hope of resurrection. Daniel 12.2 Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life. My friends, throughout the year, but particularly now at Christmas, we ought to be reflecting upon these seven wills of Christmas. In each of them is a glorious truth and a glorious hope. That Mary will conceive a child proves Christ's humanity. That Joseph will call the child Jesus proves Jesus' deity and ministry of seeking and saving the lost. That the child will be great proves Christ's divinity. That the child will be the son of the highest confirms his equality with God. That the child will sit upon his throne and reign forever confirms his messiahship and fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Indeed, the seven wills of Christmas present a complete picture of Jesus. He is the eternal God who took on a human nature without diminishing his divinity in order to seek and to save the lost. This same Jesus remains for all eternity the eternal God-man and will return one day to establish his eternal kingdom and sit on the throne of his father David. Additionally, my friends, if we would examine the seven wills of Christmas, we would be reminded that God keeps his promises. From Genesis 3 until the end of the Old Testament, God has promised to come in the flesh to redeem humanity from their sin and reign over the redeemed and rule over the earth. These seven wills demonstrates indeed that God keeps his promise. He has sent his son, the second person of the Godhead, to be redeemer and king. The first four wills have been completed and we can bank on the fact that the last three will be completed at the divinely appointed time. And finally... If you would consider these promises, I would challenge you to consider God's promise of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. See, my friends, humanity is doomed to eternity in the lake of fire because of their sin. Yet God has chosen to give humanity the gift of salvation, redemption from the lake of fire. That gift of salvation given to humanity is Christ. The gift of Christ was not wrapped in pretty paper, but rather in swaddling clothes. As well, he was not placed under a tree, but instead hung upon a tree. He shed his blood to atone for our sin and die in our place. He was then buried and rose again the third day as prophesied. And that he has risen demonstrates that God the Father's wrath against humanity has been appeased. My friend, the gift of salvation is free. All one has to do is to accept it through repentance and faith. One must repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ's death, shed blood, burial, and resurrection from the dead as the means of redemption from sin in the lake of fire. This is the greatest Christmas gift ever given. And friend, if you've never received that gift of salvation, do it today before it's too late. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank and praise you for the gift of salvation that you have given to us, the greatest gift ever given, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as we've taken the time to examine these seven wills of Christmas, that Lord, it has given us a better picture of our Savior. It's given us a, a more fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done and what He has yet to do. I thank you, Father, that as the redeemed, we are beloved. 
that, Lord, we are a spouse to him. We are his bride. And we look forward to that day when he returns in which we will reign and rule with him. But, Father, if there is but one person listening who never has received this gift of salvation, they've never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, that, Father, I pray that even now they would humble themselves and confess or repent of their sins before you and then put their faith, their trust, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, he has died, he shed his blood, buried, but is resurrected. That, Father, they can be saved from their sin and damnation in the lake of fire if they'd but repent of their sins and believe the gospel. Father, I pray that that may be the greatest gift they receive this year. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.